broadly speaking, no, you can't trust anything any ransomware actor says ever. But at least the big ransomware as a service groups, they have some level of reputation they have to maintain because they don't care about losing victims. They do care about losing affiliates. For these smaller groups, they don't care. They're not affiliates. It's just five dudes drinking vodka and doing ransomware, right? This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about ransomware. We've talked about ransomware on this show before. Actually, we've talked about ransomware many times uh, from our discussion with a systems administrator about how he and his team responded to a ransomware attack on their school district to the inside details on one of the worst ransomware attacks in modern history, which exploited a zero-day vulnerability in a software tool called Kaseya VSA to even the legal ramifications of a ransomware attack. A fun fact, as we learned in that discussion, if your organization also suffers data theft during a ransomware attack, which is increasingly the norm, you may need to send data breach notifications in the mail to affected customers, which means you're going to need to buy a whole lot of stamps. Ransomware appears to be the threat that simply will not go away. But worse than that, ransomware is also evolving. And when we say that, we're talking mainly about the delivery methods in ransomware. Cybercriminals who want to deliver ransomware can first break into a network by phishing an employee's account credentials, yes, but they can also brute force their way into an exposed RTP port, or they can rely on a separate piece of malware, like Emotet, which can, and this is a little insane, disguise itself and insert itself into a live normal, legitimate email thread between employees, but then attach a malicious attachment that, again, looks like something that would come from a normal person, and if it's opened, it gives attackers a foothold into a network. And then, of course, there's methods that require little to no tech savvy. Cybercriminals today can simply purchase access into a company by going to other criminal groups that are called initial access brokers. Initial access brokers find undisclosed ways to break into organizations and businesses, and then they turn around and they sell that access to other cyber criminals who want to take that access further with, say, an attack. And if you think, wow, you can just buy access into an organization, um... You can just buy ransomware. And that gets us to what we'll be mainly talking about today, which is ransomware as a service. In the ransomware as a service model, or RAS model, ransomware is bought and deployed by affiliates, which are criminal gangs that don't develop the ransomware, right? They don't make it, but they do carry out attacks with it. If successful, they simply pay a share of their ill-gotten gains back to the ransomware's creators. And for years, the ransomware-as-a-service model became the model 
for ransomware attacks. Uh, for a group like Lockbit, which was responsible for 31% of known ransomware attacks between April and December of 2022, the ransomware-as-a-service model was key to their success. Uh, if one of their affiliates was taken down, dozens of others remained unaffected. It's a sort of dispersed model of crime with no single point of failure. But as we're going to learn today, that model might be falling out of fashion. Today, to help us understand the de-rassing of ransomware, uh, what changes in the ransomware environment we can point to to see this potential change, and what this means for the future of the cybersecurity industry and law enforcement investigations, we're speaking with Alan Liska, intelligence analyst with Recorded Future. Alan, welcome to the show. David, thank you, and uh, thank you for that great introduction. I was really disappointed, though, that you didn't go from the you might have to buy a lot of stamps to an ad for stamps.com or something like that. I figured that would have just fit right in there. <laughs> I will uh, I'll bring that up with my company. We're going to we're going to hammer on this. I think you're right. I could use a couple extra bucks coming my way. That's the way that I think advertising works is that I personally get a paycheck, but I think <laughs> I think that's bribery. I think I'm thinking of it the wrong way. <laughs> Alan, we are very excited to have you on the show here. And like I said, there's actually quite a bit to get into. And so I wanted to just jump right into it. Last year, I saw that you had a presentation and you brought up this idea that we might start to see what I called in the intro, the de-rassing of ransomware. But before we get deeper into that theory, I wanted to get actually an up-to-date picture on what is happening in ransomware today because the environment, the landscape moves so quickly. And so I'm curious, a lot of kind of rapid fire questions here and just wanted to know about all of them. What changes have we seen in the past year in ransomware? And I'm thinking of the number of attacks, the number of extortion sites, the number of ransomware variants, the types of targets, you know, are certain sectors hit, are certain company sizes hit, but bringing it back up to a broader level, what changes have we seen in the past year in ransomware? So ransomware is really dynamic. At its core, it's not, right? It's the same basic principle of either encrypt data, steal data, hold it for hostage, right? That is roughly the same. But we are seeing a lot of changes in the way ransomware attacks are carried out, who they're going after, et cetera. So a few things. One, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, a lot more, a lot more smaller groups out there. We used to have kind of these big, think of it like in the 80s and 90s where you went to the mall and you had all of these big chains and that's where everybody did their shopping. And now the malls are dying and everybody's going to these little niche mom and pop stores or they're going to Amazon. And Lockbit is sort of the Amazon of that because Lockbit is sort of the one Ransomware is a service operator that still seems to be going really strong, though there are some signs of break there. The other thing we're seeing is we're seeing a lot more law enforcement action, uh, not just straight up takedowns like we saw with Hive earlier this year, but going after the money launderers, going after the cryptocurrency exchanges, affiliate arrests, etc. So we're seeing a lot more and a lot better coordinated law enforcement activity we in the industry like to refer to it as whack-a-mole, where even though you're still seeing a lot of law enforcement activity, but we're still seeing ransomware activity because you take one down, two more pop up. It's kind of the Hydra head problem. Famously, Costa Rica 
was a big one, but you had the island of Vanuatu in Australia or near Australia. You had the Albanian government taken down. You had the Brazilian system taken offline by ransomware groups. And generally, governments don't pay. National governments don't pay. They, they don't want the black eye of knowing that they paid a ransomware attacker. But you get a lot of cred, street cred, if you will, in the ransomware group if you can take out a whole government in, in sort of that ransomware underground forums and you know economy etc so there's this incentive to do that and there are no consequences if you're in russia and you are protected you can take down whatever government you want nothing's going to happen to you which is you know if anybody's seen my presentation you know why i ended it calling for drone strikes i know that's never going to happen but i think we start the conversation at drone strikes and then maybe we can move it a little more to the right of what we've been doing. You brought up really quickly there. It's insane that you brought up drone strikes, and that's not actually what I'm asking <laughs> right about now. Um, we will. But you mentioned it in this frame of if you are in Russia and you are protected. For folks who might not know what that means, what does that mean? Why is it if I'm operating ransomware in Russia that I don't have to worry? Well, generally speaking, and I apologize because I know this is a family show, but <laughs> ransomware actors are bastards. And really the, the biggest bastard out there right now is Putin. And so, you know, bastards protect their own, I guess. <laughs> ransomware actors that are based in Russia, which many of the leaders of these RAS groups are based in Russia, although the affiliates are spread out all over the world. And so this is a global problem, both in terms of the number of actors who are around the world plus law enforcement activity. But Russia refuses to cooperate with international law enforcement and stop these threat actors. You know, they claim that they don't know where they are, blah, 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 all of which, of course, we know is not true. And that has been the case for a while. They've occasionally shown, like in January of last year, they arrested several members of the Revo ransomware gang long after Revo had broken up and not been a real threat, but then they released them a couple months later. So Russia has shown a real reluctance as long as the ransomware groups don't go after targets in Russia. And you'll see this in the code where they will look for IP space or language packs that are either in Russia or the CIS countries, you know, sort of all of Russia's allies. And they will not launch attacks in those countries. I, I've often joked that the best way to defend yourself against ransomware is to just change all the computers and your network to the Russian language pack and you'll be fine. <laughs> there are some downsides to that. Obviously, you have to train all your employees to learn Russian and blah, blah, blah. But, um, <laughs> but you know, on the other hand, you won't get hit by ransomware. So which is cheaper, Russian lessons or paying a ransom? You know, really weigh those. Um, the... <laughs> But because of that, that means that these ransomware actors literally can operate with impunity. They can essentially do whatever they want without having to worry about any repercussions as long as they don't get on the bad side of the Russian government. Okay, so and then how does how do drone strikes fit into this picture? So they don't. I just want to be clear on that. Legally, <laughs> that is not anything that we can do. I've been told repeatedly by very high levels of the U.S. government because I bring it up in every meeting I have and I always get the same look. So the, the thing is, 
we have a lot of intel on these ransomware actors. They are bad at OPSEC. And part of it is they don't need to be good at it. But even if they did try and be good at it, they're really bad at it. So we have a lot of intel on who they are, where they live. Joe Tidy from the BBC went out and tried to interview one, found his house and talked to what we what he was pretty sure were his parents. I think you even may have written about this. We saw that the threat actor behind Raccoon Stealer, when he left Russia so that he wouldn't get conscripted, let his Instagram model girlfriend document their exodus down to Poland and so they could pick him up right away. Uh. The OPSEC is really poor. We know where these guys are. But, of course, we can't do anything about it, and that's why drone strikes would be an option because you take out one of these guys, and I promise you a whole lot of them would retire because suddenly you've, you've raised the stakes on it. I even offered – I was in a meeting with – I won't mention the agency, but I was in the meeting with an agency briefing on some of the nation-state ransomware stuff, and I even offered – I'm like, look, guys, just leave me alone with the drones for like five minutes <laughs> – I'll go ahead and do it. Arrest me. I'll go to jail for two years. I'll write a book. It'll sell a million copies because it'll be really exciting. And then you can say, look, you know, just rogue dude who went and did this had nothing to do with us. We apologize. We're putting him in jail. We're punishing him appropriately. I mean, a nice jail, please. Please don't send me to like Rikers or something. But other than that. I enjoyed that in this fantasy there's such a dim view here of the way that we punish people who go rogue with like a drone strike, a famously violent way to deal with things that is not actually precise. We have so many records of abuse happening with drone strikes and we're like, yeah, I'm just going to get like two years and I'm going to make a million dollars. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are all kinds of problems with drone strikes and their accuracy and so on. And that is just the technical side of it. Legally, even if I, as a rogue person, went and did it and were successful, the legal consequences for the U.S. would be pretty dramatic. So, you know, (laughs) I, I understand it's off the table, but I do think we need to develop stronger strategies for how we go after these ransomware actors. I think the things we're doing now are good, in terms of hacking back, in terms of seizing infrastructure, seizing wallets, those things are all good, but we need to figure out what the next level is. So something between what we're doing now and drone strikes that could be more effective at actually stopping some of these attackers earlier in the process. (laughs) On some of the things you were mentioning there, right? Like we do have more coordinated efforts between law enforcement agencies across different countries and also At the same time, we're seeing that there are smaller groups cropping up, that there's different ways to buy ransomware, as you said, Lockbit being, you know, the Amazon. What do all of these changes mean within where ransomware is headed in the future? How can we, at Malwarebytes on our team, there's like always a bit of like a please don't make us do predictions. Um, (laughs) And I realize now I'm asking you to predict, but I won't say the words predict. I'm saying all of this data, all of these trends, what does that mean potentially for ransomware going forward? So one of the things that we're seeing, we talk about a lot of new ransomware groups. So like in 2022, Recorded Future identified over 500 new ransomware variants that were published. Now, a lot of these are things that we never saw actually deployed anywhere that maybe samples that that wound up, they may be like science projects or whatever, but there's a lot of them out there. The thing is, 
most of them are not new ransomware. What we're actually seeing is we're seeing all of this leaked code that's been coming from these various ransomware groups that have broken up over the years. So we have Revo leaked code, we have Chaos leaked code, we have Conti leaked code, we have Lockbit leaked code. So we have dozens of kind of leaked codes out there that these other groups and why we're seeing this kind of move away from RAS, these other groups are taking and kind of adopting as their own. So they're not building new ransomware from scratch. There is some of that. Occasionally we will see something new and unique and that's interesting, but most of what we see is just repurposed code. And we see a lot of what we call, or what I call Franken ransomware. And I know because you have a very technical audience, I know there's somebody out there right now in the comments going, it's technically Frankenstein's monsters ransomware. You know how hard that is to say? <laughs> I'm calling it Franken ransomware and just accept it. Sorry. But we are seeing that. Again, I think you wrote about the ISXIRGS attack, right? That was a great example of Franken ransomware where it was a note from the Cheerscript ransomware, and then it was the cryptor used by an older ransomware that was leaked earlier. And so all of these different components were put together to create a kind of a new ransomware, but it was all made of other parts of ransomware. And that's a lot of what we see that's happening. And, and then even when you talk about the exploitation there, it was an old exploit, but they found that they used POC code that had been released on GitHub. And so they were able to scan the internet and use that POC exploit code to then exploit and deploy their ransomware. The thing that I was most curious about here is like you said, so many leaks have happened. And I wanted to know, has that always been the case? Like have big groups always suffered a ransomware code leak the list that you rattled off i was like oh that's a lot of them and it's not just a lot of small fry groups it's big ones and so is that just the norm like do ransomware groups just get their code leaked by someone so it wasn't the norm if you go all the way back to the olden times of 2015 and 16 when you had single machine ransomware like Locky and Server and some of these others. Occasionally you would see leaked code, but it was really rare, but that's because you didn't have an affiliate model. You had one group that was doing everything. So they would build the ransomware, they would maintain the code in the, in the sort of close-knit group, but that's not the way the modern ransomware ecosystem works now. You talked a little bit about the initial access brokers, but you also have coders that you can contract out to. You have pen testers that you can contract out to. You can contract negotiators if you want. You can contract translators if you want. So this whole underground marketplace that exists to serve ransomware means that your small group can do a lot, but that also means that you are entrusting your the keys to your kingdom to these random contractors that you're paying in Bitcoin every now and then. And that, for example, is why the Lockbit code got leaked. Dude didn't pay his contractor. And so the contractor's like, F you, I'm leaking your code. So one, pay your contractors if you're going to start ransomware. Well, one, don't start ransomware. But if you are going to start <laughs> ransomware, pay your damn contractors. Otherwise, your code's going to be leaked. But what we're dealing with here is because there's this dispersal of and, and division of labor within ransomware that didn't exist six or seven years ago, you now have more opportunities for those leaks to happen. I can't believe that we have potentially approached 
a environment for ransomware, like you said, because it's so dispersed. And so there's so many contractors working on it. It's such a organized business that I hear these things like, oh, they didn't pay their contractors. And so someone leaked it. And I hear like the words, like you have to trust other parts, people that you're just paying in Bitcoin. And I feel like we're so close to a ransomware group having like a software supply chain issue (laughs) and it just feels like such a like that's a thing that like legitimate businesses have to worry about and then to know that these cyber criminals have bulked up so much infrastructure that maybe there's one day where they're like oh no like our ransomware has like a log4j issue and it's like oh what what do we do about that and i just can't believe that we've potentially like we're approaching that world it feels so bizarre because they're cyber criminals you know well so think about what happened with conti what happened with conti was insider threat you had essentially a pissed off employee a a ukrainian researcher that had managed to infiltrate the organization and pretend to be an affiliate and when conti said we stand with russia fully the researcher said no you don't and then released everything. So that is the insider threat model right there. And then tie on to that, the fact that like many organizations, I mean, how many times have you talked to organizations that let local admin on every workstation because that's just easier than trying to lock it down? Well, you think about it, you had an affiliate that had access to all of their chat channels, even some of the administrative chat channels, had access to some of their code base. Why would an affiliate need all those accesses? So they didn't lock down permissions and credentials. Again, just like what happens in the organizations that are hit by ransomware that probably if they had done better network segmentation, had better identity and access management, wouldn't have been affected as much by a ransomware attack. (laughs) I wanted to go back quickly to this idea of the Franken ransomware or the Frankenstein's monsters ransomware or ransomware that is built in a way that it is evocative of Frankenstein's monster <laughs> from the Mary Shelley novel. Um, I, and the basic question I had here actually is, is that ransomware harder to detect? And I feel like there's a lot in that question about the different ways that we detect ransomware. But the question still is, is ransomware that's cobbled together, is it harder to detect? What is it? It's harder to attribute. It's the same level of detection capability. So broadly speaking, there are some exceptions, but broadly speaking, it really doesn't matter what ransomware is being used. The methodologies are roughly the same across the board. The ransomware is sort of the last stage of a very long kind of attack process, right? Because you have the initial access. And then the threat actors have to get the credentials they need. Then they have to find the documents that they think are valuable. Then they have to exfiltrate those documents. Then they have to get to the domain controller. And then they have to use the domain controller most likely to push out the ransomware. And they may go after ESXi servers and Linux servers and so on while they're in there. So those tools and everything are the same, right? That lead up to the ransomware deployment. Actors use roughly the same kind of tools. They use Cobalt Strike. They use Brute Mattel. They use Bloodhound. They use Mimikatz. They use AdFind. They use all of these tools that, if you have quality endpoints, should detect and alert on, except that we know that the first thing many ransomware groups do when they land is they have scripts that disable those endpoints. And just a quick side note here, if you're listening to this, go check 
your security logs now and find out if you have a big red honking alert every time a third-party tool tries to disable your security tool because you should but i see so many orgs that don't alert on that and i'm like why that's like the first thing the bad guys do whether it's ransomware nation state whatever they shut down the security tool that might be able to catch them when they land on that box so high alert on that please and then the ransomware does you know roughly the same thing there are different encryption schemes there are different methods some encrypt whole files some encrypt part of the file you know there, there are all these like nuances to it but it does roughly the same thing in roughly the same way and so detecting the ransomware itself isn't a problem the problem is after a successful attack can you effectively attribute that to a specific group oh well this is identified as lockbit but it's sending me to a completely different set of infrastructure than lockbit's infrastructure so what is that group who is behind that group can i trust anything they say i mean broadly speaking no you can't trust anything any ransomware actor says ever but at least the big ransomware as a service groups they have some level of reputation they have to maintain because they don't care about losing victims. They do care about losing affiliates. For these smaller groups, they don't care. They're not affiliates. It's just five dudes drinking vodka and doing ransomware, right? <laughs> if your key doesn't work, they don't care. If you can't get your files back, well, it doesn't matter to us. We got your money already. And so that attribution and that challenge of we don't really have the resources and we don't care once we have your money. That is a big problem if you've been successfully hit, which is why it's so important to stop the ransomware before it deploys, if at all possible. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned here, right? The big groups. And that reminded me that the big groups that I've seen, Conti, right? Lockbit. I've only been in the cybersecurity industry for so many years, right? And so I don't actually know too much about ransomware that isn't ransomware as a service. The big groups that I've written about and I followed are all products of ransomware as a service. You know, it feels like they've been able to get as large as they have because of this model. And my question here is, were groups of this size just simply not possible before the ransomware as a service model? Or, or is there something else at play in why or how these big groups have suddenly materialized and suddenly just dominated. So we saw in 2016, we saw the groups behind Lockheed make hundreds of millions of dollars. So there was the ability to make money there. Or we think they made hundreds of million. We, it may not have been that much. Again, they don't file tax forms or anything like that that we can <laughs> see. But you have in ransomware as a service, you have that force multiplier. But that is also helped by the initial access brokers. So if I'm a ransomware guy and I got to go out and I got to find a vulnerable target, get access to that target, get admin access to it, and then carry out the ransomware attack, maybe I can do a dozen targets in a year if I'm really motivated and don't have anything else going on. So even if I have 100 affiliates, at best, you're looking at maybe 1,200 victims a year across me and all of my affiliates if I start my ransomware as a service. But if I have an initial access broker 
you know, and I think you explained it really well, but basically the way it works is the initial access brokers spend their time going around and gaining initial access through whatever method they want and then turning around and kind of flipping that access for a couple grand, you know, maybe two to five to maybe $10,000, kind of like the worst house flipping show ever. (laughs) If I can then just buy my access for $2,000 or $10,000 or whatever at a time, then I can, at the very minimum, double the number of ransomware attacks that I carry out as an affiliate, likely even more. So now, if I have ransomware and I have 100 affiliates, maybe instead of 1,200 attacks a year, I can do 3,600 attacks or 5,000 attacks or whatever, because they go so much faster. So it is that combination of ransomware as a service, one group that's making sure that the code's working, that the portal's working, They'll handle the negotiation for you. They handle the payment for you. They'll handle the money laundering for you. So they've taken all of that off your plate. And then on the other side, buying access from affiliates allows you to work so much faster because then you get to focus on the thing you do well, which is being a bastard and destroying networks and stealing sensitive data about children and hospital patients. So good on you. (laughs) With the RAS model, we've also talked about that actually there's something else happening. And this is all of the the Franken ransomware, right? Taking pieces of leaked code and doing small modifications to it. And this imagery that, look, this is just five people, you know, in a room and they're just making money off of cybercrime. All of this is to say, why is Franken ransomware, if that's what we're calling it, right? Why is that model even attractive now when RAS modeling was so attractive for so many years? Why do it? Why even tinker with code? Oh, so there's two reasons. One, you get to keep all of the money, right? So with the way the RAS model works is depending on what services you get from the operator of the RAS program, you're giving up anywhere from 10 to 30% of whatever ransom was paid to you. But the other problem is that Right now, being part of a RAS program can be dangerous. I mean, look what happened with Hive just earlier this year, right? Turns out they had two servers sitting in a data center in California, which, by the way, if you are operating a ransomware service, I highly recommend locating your servers in the U.S. Great bandwidth, very easy to hide in all the traffic, and definitely the FBI will never, ever find them and... Get a list of all of your affiliates, all of your targets, and be able to arrest you. So absolutely do that. I have some recommendations I can send your way. Right here in Northern Virginia, actually, we have a whole lot of data centers. Um, but, but imagine you're in a Hive affiliate, and you're like, wait, you had your servers where? You know, And you had no control over that as an affiliate. So you signed up to these sort of mastermind bad guys. And then you find out that they're just putting stuff in California. So there is that fear that, and rightfully so, every RAS operator out there has a big-ass target on their back right now. And it's not like a big-ass target from the U.S. or the U.K. It's a big-ass target from everybody not named Russia. I mean, you saw the Hive takedown notice. There were like 25 countries on there, most of which can't agree on anything, but they all f***ing hate ransomware. (laughs) <laughs> and, and again, I apologize for cussing, but that's how much they don't like ransomware. And so if you're an affiliate, it is a really bad time to be part of a RAS program because likely most of those RAS programs are going to go down because that's where law enforcement is spending a lot of their attention. 
and not just the FBI spending the attention. That is where the NSA is spending their attention. That is where GCH2 is spending their attention. That's like where the people that own the satellites and own the telecoms around the world, those are the people that are looking for you now and looking for the RAS operators now. Again, they may not be able to touch the ones that are in Russia, but if they can take down enough of their infrastructure and get enough intel, they will pick up everybody else around the world. And that's what we're seeing is it is really dangerous to be an affiliate not in Russia right now because as these servers get turned over and as the intel is gathered off of them, arrest warrants are issued again around the world and everybody cooperates. And again, as we had the commentary early on the U.S. prison system, all of these countries love to send the suspects to us for trial in jail. I'd be really worried if I were an affiliate that you might wind up in a U.S. prison, which is not a great place to be. And that's a sad commentary on the U.S., but that's probably for another podcast. So if you're an affiliate and you are like, you know what? I don't need $10 million. I need a few hundred thousand dollars a year and I can live like a king in whatever country I'm in. It is so much easier if you and your buddies are carrying out these attacks and splitting the money three or four ways, but you get to keep all of it. And you're going to handle a couple dozen attacks, maybe at most a year, and really fly under the radar of where law enforcement is looking right now. In the same way that we're seeing more variants, which points to, you know, and those variants are, are modifications on leaked code. And so that points to smaller groups starting up on their own. So there's more of that. Are we seeing, is there any data that we have that can prove that there's actually also at the same time fewer affiliates with a group like Lockbit? Like, do we ever know? Do they report that? Um, but are we able to see, oh yeah, actually we're, you know, like this is a tough year for Lockbit. I, I just want to know, is it even possible to see from attacks if there are fewer affiliates? So right now we can't really tell. And that's, it's really hard. So there are fewer affiliates because there are fewer big RAS groups. If you look at the number of active RAS groups right now, there are fewer of them. But like Lockbit is an example. Like Lockbit has probably attracted the stragglers of the affiliates and what we've seen from interviews with some of the affiliates that have been pushed in the press and and so on is that the affiliate model is really fluid so i might be an affiliate of lockbit and i might be an affiliate of another ransomware as a service group and depending on which one's offering a better deal in a given week i might deploy one or the other but now as a third option, I might have like been testing and using some of the stolen ransomware code. So maybe if this is like an easy target and I think I'm going to be able to get the money relatively easy with little negotiation, I just deploy my own ransomware. So like one week I may be deploying my own code. One week it might be Lockbit. One week it might be Royal. It just depends on what's happening at any given time. As we were saying a little bit earlier that, you know, with the, rise of this modified type of ransomware, this cobbled together ransomware, that it's harder to attribute attacks. Like you said, you know, the detections before an attack are all the same. You know, the way that attackers move through a network, the way they gain entry, the deployment of certain types of tools or how those tools are used, something like Cobalt Strike, right? Which is not itself a like hacking tool, but can be used maliciously. So all of this just sort of a preamble to say that 
Detection still happen the same way, but attribution is harder. My question is, how does the difficulties, the new difficulties in attribution, how does that affect a lot of what we've been talking about so far, things like law enforcement investigations? It makes it that much harder, right? So one of the big problems is there's no ransomware reporting requirement, right? There, there are select industries that may have reporting requirements. Um, you know, Some of the government contractors have reporting requirements, but broadly speaking, there is no reporting requirement for most victims. So if you're a small group and you're carrying out 12 attacks a year, and let's say that you get lucky and four of those 12 pay, and they're not in any of the reporting, you know, industries that are required to report, or they're in a country that doesn't have any reporting requirements, then those four attacks likely go completely under the radar. Now, if this small group has set up an extortion page or a kind of a name and shame page, then you may know about some of the victims because they'll be on that page. But even in the case where victims don't pay, data doesn't always show up on those data extortion sites for a variety of reasons. Turns out you might not be able to get data, like the DLP actually worked in the network and it prevented the data theft, right? Or the data that they got, the threat actor thought was really good data, turned out to be crap. So it's not worth putting up on the extortion site, right? So you may wind up with, instead of, you had four people pay out of the 12 victims, so that's eight victims left. Maybe half of those wind up on the extortion site. So it looks like this group only took out four victims that year. They're going to stay under the radar of law enforcement who are going to go after the bigger groups before getting to the smaller group. And, and so a great example of that was with Hive. We knew about roughly 230 victims of Hive because that is how many they had posted to their extortion site. The FBI handed out 1,300 keys to known victims, and that was only after they made it onto the server there was a whole other year of other victims before that. I think the final number I saw somewhere was almost 2,000 victims. So there were almost 2,000 victims. Only 230 made it to the extortion site. That doesn't mean that 90% of those victims paid. It just means for some reason there wasn't good data or there wasn't a reason why it never they never made it to the extortion site. So 90% of the victims we just didn't know about because they never got reported anywhere. I've never heard that somewhat of a figure, right? Like the kind of 90%. Because we have also done a lot of research on ransomware attacks based off of the uploads, the publishing on extortion sites. Like those are, you know, the source of truth in a way. Right. Um, and we always knew that it was a sliver of the tax, but I just didn't know, right? Was it, you know, are we seeing half? Are we seeing, you know, a third, a quarter, a fifth? And to know that it's actually somewhere in the realm of a tenth, at least for this one group, right? If we even have that much, it's just a bit astonishing. That's all. That It's like 10x, you know, it's not two. That's concerning. That's all. <laughs> right. It, it, it absolutely is. And, and, you're, and I love your caveat there. That is just this one group. We don't know. The, the, you know, Hive could be an anomaly, and for everybody else, you know, half of the victims are making it to the extortion site, and we just don't have good numbers to know that. And that is a big part of the problem: is we can't understand the scope of it. And I mean, to your point about extortion sites, 
you know, at the end of 2021, we recorded future and, and I'm sure you all were scraping from about 45, maybe 50 different extortion sites. At the end of 2022, we were scraping from over 140 extortion sites. That's how much that sort of ransomware market had exploded in terms of diversity. And we know that there are groups now that are trying to avoid the extortion site model entirely and are using Discord or Telegram or talks as ways of releasing data. So you're not even getting all of those groups just by scraping from the extortion site. You have to look at all of these different other places where groups may post their stuff and follow specific accounts that are doing the posting. Something that I think is always important in these kinds of conversations, right, is like, what does this mean for like the average ransomware victim moving forward? Because I think we can kind of, I think there are questions here sometimes about like, oh, does this mean attacks will go up? Does it mean it'll go down? And I think there's also something that we have to recognize, like, it doesn't matter, like, if attacks go up by count, because every single attack in its own right can destroy a business. And so I've always struggled with, we should care because the number is bigger than it was before. We should always care, even if the number goes lower, because these are existential attacks on businesses and they're existential attacks on livelihoods. And so I guess the question then that I'm asking is, does this make ransomware recovery? How does it affect recovery? How does it affect the average ransomware target in the future? There are a lot of different things that you have to think about with this. One, it means that, and I know saying this is like shouting into the void, but you're really better off if you can stop them before they can steal your files and encrypt data, right? I mean, I know that's obvious, and we've been saying that for a half dozen years, and you know, it still hasn't worked. But, but I mean, you're going to run into a lot more challenges in terms of you know, the quality of negotiation, the quality of the decryptor, the quality of the decryption key, if you're just using stolen code, and you don't really understand it, and something goes wrong, you know, like, we see this all the time, where the decryptor that the ransomware actor gives you chokes on large files, right. And, you know, at the same time, these ransomware actors are going after ESXi servers, which are filled with these giant files. When you have a ransomware group now, a big ransomware group now, and you know, you run into a problem with the large file, they will at least attempt to fix it. Again, one of these smaller groups is going to say, yeah, sucks to be you, man, because it's cost nothing to rebrand and do something else. So if reputation gets out there, oh, group X, their decryptor doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. Well, tomorrow, now they're group X1, right? And may even be the same code they were using before, but they've got a new extortion site and just go right on with the attacks with a different name in front of them. You are going to run into more and more problems and you're going to be less likely to recover your files going forward, especially as you see these sort of code bases diverge and the ransomware's operator's code gets better and better and their code will continue to get worse and worse as new things happen and they won't have the resources to improve it. Recovery is going to get more difficult, which, you know, in a way is good. It'll encourage fewer people to pay. Ransomware will be less profitable, but you know, that's a multi-year problem, right? It's not going to immediately have that impact. Um, And so, you know, we're still talking about years and years of ransomware, unfortunately. Are there things that the cybersecurity industry should be doing because of the changes we're seeing now, again, which I you know, kind of use this 
wrapper of the de-rassing of ransomware. You just said it right now, you know, recovery is going to potentially be more difficult because of a lot of breakdowns in quality of ransomware, which is a bizarre thing just to say right. out loud. Like, oh, our ransomware is our, our like, oh, remember the days when ransomware was good? Like, it's just, oh my goodness. Um, But all of that is to say, you also brought up that we're, for half a dozen years, we've said like, please just, you know, the best, the thing you can do is just not get attacked, you know, just t- stop an attack before it happens, before the ransomware itself is deployed, before it's activated. That hasn't worked very well. It's still going on. So my question then is, what should the cybersecurity industry be doing right now to prepare for this rassless ransomware future? I like kind of one of the things that CISA has done. You know, last week they released um, kind of the guide for how we start writing better software. And I think that's a big part of it. But also, we in the cybersecurity industry, need to kind of, there's a lot of inertia in the networks that we support in the organizations that we support, what's often referred to as technical debt. And we need to get more proactive about helping the organization get rid of that technical debt. I I come back to the example of Active Directory every time because last year Active Directory turned 21. And that means that there are organizations that have had the same Active Directory configuration for 21 years. Yes, they apply patches. Yes, they make occasional adjustments. But Active Directory is so critical to so many organizations, but also so critical to the bad guys looking to exploit those organizations. And it's also really brittle. Like for a 21-year-old, it seems like it's, you know, needs to drink some milk or something. It's really fragile. <laughs> and I'll go in and I'll talk to organizations. I'm like, well, hey, Microsoft recommends, you know, these changes to better improve the security of your active directory infrastructure. And you get like these looks of fear, like, oh my God, no, we can't change active directory because it'll break our network and we'll be offline for three days. And I'm like, yeah, but you'll also be offline for three days when you get hit with ransomware. Or yeah. when a nation yeah. state infects your network and then goes out to 1,800 of your customers and infects them as well. The infrastructure and the tools that we use sometimes make it a lot more difficult to improve the security and in- improve the security posture. And I do think we need to figure out how to make the business case to the organization because you can't do it on numbers, right? Numbers don't mean anything. There has to be a way to make <laughs> the business case for why we need to improve our technology and why we need not even improve our technology. Like a lot of people have really good security tools that could stop ransomware. I've been in number of ransomware incidents where I've kind of come in afterwards and I'm like going through the logs. I'm like, they were there, they were there, they were there. And the, you know, the alerts weren't tuned right, but they were tuned right for other things that they had to detect. And they were tuned right to what the organization thought was right. So it's not that we need new tools. In fact, and and I know as a vendor, you and I are both vendors. And so it's always kind of like <laughs> somebody wants to kick me under the table when I say that. I think oftentimes we need fewer tools in many organizations, but we need better managed and better run tools, which involves better training and so on. Like I think vendors 
that don't should start offering their customers like quarterly training, right? Like, hey, here's the new things we've implemented. And, you know, Salesforce, cover your ears when I say this, offer their, their training free of charge to those customers, like so that they can get better at using their tools and in using the latest features and so on and better secure themselves. I think it's entirely valid. We see it a lot as well that there are people who have, they have good security software. Um, but like you said, you sometimes go in, you drop in. I've never personally done that, but we have people at Malwarebytes who have, who have dropped into you know an environment, who have visited a site and they see that there were a lot of signs. Like they, it's not like ransomware attackers were doing something that had never been done before. They were leaving signs of entry everywhere. There were notifications. There were signals. There were flashing lights going off saying like, look, something is happening. These folks are moving laterally through a network. They've abused privileges or, or something as simple as like every Friday night at 3 a.m. there seems to be login attempts from this country that you have no business with. Uh, these are things that we've known about that you could have known about if you knew how to use the tools to their best benefit for your organization. And I think most organizations and most people in general, like there's only so many tools that they can even keep track of in their own mind that new tools, like a brand new thing, that's not actually the solution, you know? Like there are things that are already present, which is all just to say, I wish we all knew how to use the things we have a lot better because, you know, here's hoping, fingers crossed, that would lead to some actual better security, better defense. Uh, Alan, that is all I have for today's show. I wanted to thank you again so much for coming on today. Oh, yeah. No, it was great. You know, I love Malwarebytes. I love what you all do over there. Really great product. And so it's really awesome to be kind of, you know, talking with you know, a company that I have so much respect for and I've really enjoyed my time with you. Oh, thank you so much. A Alan, again, thank you for the for the little ad there. I don't do ads, but I will do ads, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> That's all to say. Thank you again. Thanks so much. No problem. Have a good day. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin McLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.